NPR, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Imagine making a billion dollars a day. ExxonMobil did last quarter. So where's all the money going? Industry executives say it's being well spent. The oil and natural gas industry is investing more than they make in earnings. So we're plowing the money back in to produce more oil and gas in the future. But critics charge when you do the math, the numbers just don't add up. The major oil companies are only putting back in the ground a modest fraction of what they have been siphoning away from consumers at the pump across our country. Also shocking news, the world's biggest machine has some big problems. The nation's electric power grid needs a new game plan. These stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman, sitting in for Steve Kerwood. You flip a switch and the lights go on. Now, that's the way it's supposed to work, but in recent days it became painfully obvious that sometimes it doesn't. Record-breaking temperatures across the country had people cranking up their air conditioners. The demand for electricity soared, and supplying the power to satisfy needs stressed and strained generating plants. In California, there were blackouts, and the grid supplying the state with electricity came close to the breaking point. Our big story right here in Southern California is the heat wave of 06. Temperatures are going to stay in the triple digits again across much of Southern California today, and thousands are still without power. We have live team coverage. In Missouri, thunderstorms knocked out power lines. More than half a million people went without electricity for a week. Officials there declared a state of emergency. The mayor warns many might not have power restored until next week. One of the things that we want to make sure of, though, is we do everything we can to protect every person in the city. Uh, This is a life-or-death situation. Uh, and we want to we want to reach as many individuals as possible. So we're not ex- we're not sparing any expense. And in Queens, New York, they still don't know what caused the power lines there to melt, leaving tens of thousands to sweat in the dark for days. The bad news is he has told everyone here, all the assembled reporters, that there is no time, no day officially that Con Ed can guarantee that the power will be restored for 100,000 people here in Queens. It's all a reminder of just how dependent we are on what engineers call the world's largest machine. It's the network of 180,000 miles of high power transmission lines that crisscross the country, carrying electricity from generating plants to local utilities. The production of power was deregulated in the 1990s. It was supposed to result in more competition and cheaper electricity. But the system of lines that carry the power was kept intact. And now some say it's badly in need of a major overhaul. Joining me to discuss the nation's power grid are two experts in the field. Judah Rose is managing director of ICF International. It's a consulting firm that specializes in energy and environmental issues. And Ashley Brown, executive director of Harvard University's Electricity Policy Group. He's also former commissioner of Public Utilities Commission of Ohio. Gentlemen, thanks for your time. Thank you. It's a pleasure. You're welcome. It's a pleasure. The electric system in the United States is the backbone of our modern economy, and yet um, some have called it, like the former Secretary of Energy, Bill Richardson, a third world electric grid. How good is our our grid, Mr. Rose? Um, I think our grid is medium, as was sort of the score I would give it. It's a large grid. It is the largest in the world. 
it generally functions the way we want it to function, uh, but there is significant room for improvement, and it's an improvement that is long overdue. Mr. Brown? Yeah, I don't. I don't disagree with that. I think, however, the uh, I, I don't know that I would describe it as third world as as, as Governor Richardson did, uh, but it certainly has room for a lot of improvement. Well, who owns the grid? Uh, that's easy. Lots and lots of different people. <laughs> the you know it's a very balkanized system in terms of ownership. Uh, it was owned by uh, each utility had its own grid, and some utilities, particularly uh, municipally owned utilities, were dependent on other owners of the grid. Uh, but basically, there's several hundred owners of the grid. Now, the control in many cases, the owners also control it. But in big parts of the United States now, particularly in the Northeast, uh, the Upper Midwest, and in, in in the West Coast and in Texas, the grid is actually, although owned by a variety of utilities is actually centrally operated by independent system operators. So we've got this huge system, Mr. Rose, uh, that's got tens of thousands of miles that's being controlled by hundreds of different owners, and yet it has to make split-second decisions on where all this electricity goes. Yes, that's correct. And historically, there have been uh, procedures and mechanisms put into place to facilitate the coordinated operation of the grid. Um, But that coordination is voluntary and is not consistent with the changing nature of the power system, both in terms of the uh, deregulation of the industry and in terms of the very dynamic growth that we're seeing in demand for electricity. So do we need more transmission lines? Well, certainly in some areas of the country. I mean, they, there, there's a, there was a recent study that indicated that at least four areas there was real deficiency. When I say four areas, four areas of North America, because one of them was Ontario, but the others were the New York area, Southwest Connecticut, Southern California. It's undisputed in my in my view. That's how strong I feel about it. That there's been underinvestment in the grid. Many of the areas that uh, Ashley just mentioned are are known sort of problem areas, and uh, it turns out that. You can't solve everything with new power plants. Uh, It's important to recognize that while in many cases you can either have power plants or new transmission lines, there's a limit to how much you can just rely on new power plants. And we have crossed that limit, uh, and we have uh, therefore lowered the uh, reliability of the grid. But uh, as you take a look at the investment levels, although they've started improving in the last two or three years, uh, in the period leading up to the 2003 blackout, they were just down, down, down relative to the electricity demand. Well, the blackout that you cite was the largest blackout in North American history. 50 million people were affected in nine states. Nine nuclear power stations went down, 12 regular power stations. Mm -hmm. And Ontario. And uh, it's traced back to this first energy company. And uh, it's one of those stories about for want of a nail. It started off, it seems, with a a tree uh, kind of hitting a sagging uh, electric uh, power line. But do we know what caused that blackout? Well, there's really two issues. I mean, what, one is what caused the initial incident, which which you described actually earlier. But the second question is, why did it cascade into other systems? Uh, and, I, and I'm not sure we know exactly why. In some systems, it didn't cascade. I mean, most, for the most part, we in New England weren't affected by it. Southern Ohio, just south of First Energy Territory, was not affected by it. Uh, on the other hand, you know, as you point out, a number of states were. So the cascading effect, you can't say, well, the, simply that that was the result of First Energy. There were obviously failings that went on along the system. I think that, you know, when you push the grid to its extreme... You should not be surprised that systems fail. It's interesting that even now we're really not sure of what caused uh, the blackout of 2003. Um, But soon afterwards, President Bush got on nationwide TV and said, 
and said this. Obviously, the sooner we can get electricity up, the more normal people's lives will become. Uh, the um, one thing I think I can say for certain is that this was not a terrorist act. Mr. Brown, how did we know that it wasn't terrorism just minutes after the black had occurred? I mean, their record, first of all, records are maintained at the companies of exactly what, what was going on and what they knew on an instantaneous basis. So you could go back and retrace and figure out some, you could figure out various failings along along the way. Uh, you know, could a terrorist act cause that kind of thing? Yeah, possibly it could. But that's not what happened here. I was reading that in Colombia they have 200 terrorist attacks against transmission lines a year. They do, and they're very good at replacing them very quickly. <laughs> you know, there are mechanisms. There are remote camera. There's a remote sensors. Um, I think that people are sensitive to that problem, increasingly so. But it's, uh, you know, outside of the normal realm of experience where the typical problems are, you know, individual line failures uh, and uh, sort of tornadoes or hurricanes or that type of problem. When I see one of these huge transmission towers, 100, 120 feet uh, high, I think of Godzilla. (laughs) And and I think, you know, here they're very vulnerable. You know, he's tripping over them and, and they're ugly. Let's face it. Why don't they put these things underground? Well, a couple of comments on the, the Godzilla problem. <laughs> the first is is that uh, these lines are very hot, okay, so that uh, they're dissipating a lot of heat. So if you touch them, that would be, you know, for many reasons, would be a bad thing to do. So to stick them underground, you have to basically deal with sort of the heat problem. And what happens is is that your system becomes somewhere between three and ten times more expensive when you try to go to an all-underground system. So in some sense, you know, we are dealing with a a difficult problem, and I think that no one likes to see the lines, and yet there's, you know, except for in limited niche situations, not a lot of chance that we're going to be able to really eliminate that problem. Mr. Rose, thank you for coming in. My pleasure. Ashley Brown is executive director of Harvard University's Electricity Policy Group. Judah Rose is managing director of ICF International. And Mr. Brown, thank you. Thank you. My pleasure as well. Well, in the next few weeks, the Department of Energy will designate what are called National Interest Electric Transmission Corridors. The plan gives the federal government eminent domain over 7 to 10 mile wide swaths of land as rights of way for utility transmission towers. One place that's likely to be on the list is a 200 mile long track stretching from Utica to Port Jervis, New York. Chris Rossi lives in Hubbardsville near Utica. She's with one of 40 groups protesting the plan. Hello, Ms. Rossi. Hello. My understanding is that the proposed power line would go through a national park, 154 streams and rivers, 155 wetlands, and 65 miles of farmland? Yes, that's correct. And in addition to that, it cuts through 56 towns in New York and 17 towns possibly in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you live in Hubbardsville, New York. Uh, where would this line go in relationship to you? Well, Hubbardsville is a very small town, and I would have a lovely view of these very, very large 130-foot-tall power lines from my front porch. What, is it, what does it look like when you look out your window, Ms. Rossi? Well, my house was probably built in the 1870s. It was when the hops were being grown in central New York. It was a time of great prosperity. I look out over rolling green fields and, uh, you know, little houses, little farming houses. Well, you use electricity, right? Yeah. Well, so well, where do you think it comes from? Well, I, I think it comes from the windmills that I can see when I drive through my area. We do have windmills, and 
I and many of the other people in my area are very much in favor of forward-looking energy transmission and energy generation. We don't think this company is featuring any forward-looking aspects to the project. So the electricity that would be on this power line wouldn't come to your house? No. In fact, it goes straight from Hydro-Quebec down to Westchester, where it's then distributed downstate. Upstate would not get any of the power. In addition, it would lower rates somewhat downstate, but it would bring rates up in my area. Well, Ms. Rossi, what are you going to do? What am I going to do? I'm the co-chair of Stop Nairi, and we have been very vocal in our opposition to the project. We've been working with local politicians and the other citizens groups up and down the line. So I'm going to keep talking, 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 and agitating to keep this out of our area. Chris Rossi was with the group Stop Neary. She lives in Hubbardsville, New York. Well, Ms. Rossi, I want to thank you very much. Thank you for this opportunity. Coming up, when it comes to conserving energy, every little thing can mean big savings. Some homeowner tips are just ahead. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Keeping cool this summer means turning up the juice. But demanding juice juice and more juice strains not just the nation's electric power grid, it can also short-circuit your budget. You could retrofit your house with big-ticket items, things like solar panels or tankless hot water heaters, but producer Claire Schoen discovered it's the little stuff that really counts. David Johnston is president of What's Working, a green-building consulting firm. I met with him at a cafe not long ago to get some ideas about tackling skyrocketing energy bills. I don't know if you're in stocks and bonds and got money in the bank at maybe 3% interest or 4% interest. You're looking at 20 or 30% return on your money by doing energy retrofits. It's the best investment you can make. This caught the attention of the guy at the next table, who broke into our conversation to introduce himself as Daniel Marcus and told us a tale of woe about his own energy bill. Typically, it runs around 60 to $80, and suddenly went up to 160 which I clenched my teeth and paid that. And then I got the real big surprise last month, which was... 250 pretty detrimental to my pocketbook. <laughs> I decided to pay Daniel a visit at his home. He's single and lives in a small house in Berkeley, California, with his roommate, Sean. I'm a recording artist. I'm putting together an album called Surrender right now. It's a roots rock meets uh, nouveau techno album. And uh, managed to hold down a day job to support my fledgling career. My name is Sean Hodge. I'm a private guitar teacher and a musician. The two of them took me on a tour of their house. It was a textbook illustration of America's love affair with electronic devices. We're in the living room. Typical living room with a TV and sound system. And Here's the kitchen over here. Electric stove, toaster oven, microwave, refrigerator with a freezer. This is my washer and dryer. They reside in my garage. Takes up a pretty good chunk of energy. I have no doubt about that. <laughs> so this is my bedroom. Charges from my phones and gadgets floating around, alarm clock. I have a printer, I have a heater, um, I have a little hot plate, computer, a lamp, overhead light. Let's see, in the bathroom, electric shaver, hair trimmer. Keep my little goatee a certain length. Goat trimmer. Um, And then I have two (laughs) amplifiers. 
our hot tub. It's a nice amenity, I really like it, and uh, keep it at like 103, 104 degrees pretty consistently. <laughs> it's a fairly standard setup for an American house, well, except perhaps the hot tub, but mainly filled with the gadgets of our modern lifestyle that all add up. Then we moved on to Daniel's music room. This is my recording studio. I have my um, recording system, computer, wide assortment of mics, keyboards, various instruments, plugins, amps, preamps, printer. While most of us don't have a home recording studio, we all have our own unique energy needs that are emptying our pocketbooks. Daniel and Sean don't want to be shelling out big bucks for their energy usage, but they also don't want to be forced to change their lifestyle. The little clocks and phone chargers, and I consider those pretty necessary in my life. They're not something that I really feel like I need to or want to give up. Do they really need to give up their phone chargers? Daniel and Sean actually don't have a clue where their problem lies. It's just not something they think about. I don't have time. So it's like for me, every little thing is like, uh, how do I make this go away really fast? Daniel's focus is not on home improvements, but rather on his music. What's on his mind right now is whether he'll be able to interest a visiting producer in his band's cover song. So uh, what should we play here? Let's play Surrender. That one's a pretty tasty little nugget. I don't think Piero's heard that song. Yeah, no, I guess you guys have definitely achieved that whole thing. It's kind of very, uh, it's folksy, but it doesn't whine. <laughs> Daniel's high-tech home studio makes it possible for him to be his own engineer and mix demos right here. What I'd like to do is actually reroute your tone through a compressor and naturalize it a little bit. It'll warm up the tone a little bit. Besides, Daniel and really Sean are not convinced that fixing up the house is going to save them enough money to make it worth taking time and effort away from their music. There are a lot of smart people in this country, a lot of educated people about finances, and people would be doing more energy-efficient things if it was cheaper, but it's not, I don't think. You know, I might as well just pay the extra high energy bills and keep using energy. I decided to bring green building expert David Johnston into the picture. He offered to pay a visit to Daniel and Sean to assess their energy situation. Hi there. Daniel, good to see you. David Johnston. David, nice to see you again. So, what should we be looking at today? Uh, well, tell me what I can do to be more energy efficient in my house without having to sacrifice my gadgets or my high-tech lifestyle. Well, you're an all-American guy. <laughs> this is my roommate, Sean. Hi, how's it going? Hi, David. David, nice to meet good you. Good to meet you. I hear you're a toy junkie, too. I am. All right. Just like... Most people, I think. <laughs> so let's do the low-hanging fruit, the stuff that's least expensive, right. that gives you a return in energy savings. Mm -hmm. Let's go back to the front door and let's just take a quick look at it. Yeah, my front door looks a little drafty to me. <laughs> Anytime you have a penetration in the envelope of the building, there's an opportunity for air to get through. If you look right by the deadbolt there, mm -hmm. what do you see? I see daylight. Air will gallop through there like wild horses. Wild horses. So we can see right here, you can see this old weather stripping that's been here for 50 years. And simply, even a musician can do this. Oh, even a musician? <laughs> We're not handy at all. You get sticky-backed foam that comes in a roll. Okay. And you just wash this surface down real well. Mm -hmm. Fits right on that strip. Mm -hmm. and so when the door closes, it crushes the foam. Mm -hmm. So that's costing you maybe 50 cents a day. That'll add up after a while. It's significant. And then there's the hot tub. So can we, can we open the top on your hot tub? Please. Hot tubs 
are one of God's gifts to humankind, as far as I'm concerned. Amen. Eh? Especially depending on how often you entertain your vocalists out here. As I well. haven't talked my vocalist into into my hot tub yet. <laughs> I can feel right now with my hand six inches above the water, the heat radiating from the surface of the water. You feel that? Absolutely. So one more layer of insulation, a foam that's cut out to fit the contour of the sides and just lays on the top of the water. Another quick fix. Back inside, David took a look up in the attic. Where's your furnace? Up in the attic, probably. <laughs> we think so. Some large, some large device that whirs from time to time okay. is up above. We'll pop it and peek we'll take a peek up sure. in the attic. Some insulation up here. Kind of spotty. It's, there's some here, there's some there. I see holes every place. You're just throwing money. Right out through the attic. The heating thing is still somewhat of a mystery to me. What I would do is use bags of what's called dry cellulose. Dry cellulose. Do it yourself. You don't have to pay anybody. So this is where an afternoon with a rake and a couple of buddies and just bring as many bags of cellulose as you can get up here and could literally save yourself a quarter of your energy bill every year just by putting more gray stuff up there. And it's really inexpensive. Mm-hmm. A few hundred bucks. Yeah, and it's, you can in the, the it's in the hundreds, not the thousands that's of dollars. Not, that's, a good, that's, that's a good thing. So it's going to serve you immensely. Keep it cooler as well? Oh, absolutely. Much cooler. Cooler and hotter. So it's, yep. it's, a, it's a win-win on, on both seasons. Then David turned his attention to Daniel's home recording studio. All right. All right let's look at the toy room. Here is the music studio. Well, it's quite a setup with your mixer and your... Computers and speakers and piano and that's a lot in one one place. Mm-hmm. So when everything's fired up, it's probably really sucking a lot of juice. In fact, all this equipment is sucking juice even when it's not fired up. A lot of equipment, TVs, stereos, computers, even though they say they're off, mm-hmm. they're still drawing power. And that parasitic power is typically invisible to us, but it's still spinning the meter. And it's like having a hole in your bucket, it all adds up. And I think when you say parasitic mode, you're, you're referring to... Instant on. We want to turn on our computer. We want to be ready to log on instantaneously. We turn on our TV. We want a picture instantly. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about, you know, five seconds differential. Right. So the way you address that issue, have an on-off switch on a power strip. Mm-hmm. And so when you leave the room, just hit the off switch on the power strip. Okay. And that absolutely kills everything. They do add up. Yeah. It's like walking down the street and dropping dollar bills. And we wouldn't do that. We'd probably pick up a dollar bill if we saw it. After meeting with David, Daniel decided to pick up a few of those dollar bills, starting with the attic insulation. I'm definitely interested in putting in the the dry cellulose. It doesn't sound like fun work, especially up in a dusty attic, but if it'll save me a little money and keep my place warmer and more comfortable, uh, and then cooler and more comfortable in the hot months, then put down the guitar for a few hours and uh, get out and do some grunty work. It's totally worth it. Miguel, please come insulation. Miguel, insulation. Daniel located the insulation at a big box hardware store not too far away. So hopefully this will be simple and easy, and uh, I guess we're about to find out. Hello. Got a question for you. So I need some insulation, which is um, dry cellulose. This is the dry cellulose right here. I can just use a rake and just, like, like beat on it. Yeah, you can do it. It'll it'll come apart. Sure. So I'll just grab a couple bags and give it a try. You have a cart? All right, so I'm hitting the touch screen. I'm selecting English. Insert cash or select payment type. Service with a smile, but no smile. 
Please take your change. Cash Daniel picked up the band's bass band. guitarist, Alan Stonebreaker, on the way home. We're gonna we're gonna be spreading dry cellulose around my attic. Okay. But as a reward, I'll let you jump in the hot tub. <laughs> well, now you're talking. Uh, we have gloves. We have masks. Drag this stuff up the ladder. Okay, so I'm, I'm up here in the attic with my rake and my little flashlight. And I've noticed that right here in the middle of the house, there is almost no insulation whatsoever. So I guess I just sort of chuck this stuff out there, huh? And just trying to spread it around. It's a little like playing in the sandbox as a little kid, but it's hotter and dustier and not as much fun. So Alan, yeah. when you joined the band, did you know that you were gonna get to do really fun stuff like this? I had no idea. <laughs> Woo, this is some work. <laughs> yeah, it's like stuff you do in the military, like all that crawling under stuff and... All right. Becoming more intimately familiar with my furnace than I ever thought I'd be. So are most Americans actually going to tackle something like this? With the demand for electricity breaking records, David Johnston thinks that we better. Two years from now, energy is going to be twice as expensive as it is today. That's going to get somebody's attention. But you want to be doing this now because the longer you wait, that's just money that's thrown out, literally out the windows. This isn't something that I would have thought to have done if I hadn't met you guys randomly in a cafe. So maybe a lot of people wouldn't think about or wouldn't know where to engage somebody with that expertise. Daniel was able to get advice from David, who also works with a nonprofit called Build It Green. Brian Gitt is executive director of Build It Green, but he says you don't have to live in Berkeley to get free advice on energy savings. There are programs like ours all across the country, over 50 regional programs on the ground today that are doing very similar work to Build It Green. In the Midwest, you have them in the South. Atlanta, Georgia has had a really amazing program for over 20 years. This is really a national trend. Daniel has taken the first step toward retrofitting his house. Time will tell how much it will affect his bottom line. But there are national figures, and they're promising. According to the Department of Energy, simple, low-cost measures such as weatherization, which is, in essence, just filling all those little cracks and holes around your windows, around your doors, and then adding attic insulation can save, on average, about 30% on your home's energy bill. There are all sorts of other energy-saving solutions homeowners can employ. For instance, replacing a 10-year-old fridge with a new ENERGY STAR model can save between $500 and $1,000 over the life of the machine. Plus, there are all those parasitic appliances David was talking about. A study coming out of Cornell University said that we're spending $3 billion per year just on parasitic power. That's when the machine or the appliance is off. The average homeowner could save $200 per year by reducing this type of electricity consumption. So imagine how much surge protectors could save someone like Daniel. Maybe he could even afford his hot tub. Oh, yeah. Great. <sighs> Relaxing. We stay in here until we're wrinkled, right? After my, after my fingers go into a complete prune state, I have a really good sensitivity <laughs> to the, the strings. Some might say that's actually the key to our music. <laughs> It's time to play some music. Is it, is it time? For Living on Earth, this is Claire Schoen in Berkeley, California. Now that many of the nation's supermarkets are stocking their shelves with organic foods, 
You can find more products without high-fructose corn syrup and hydrogenated oil. But food writer Pim Teshamunwiwit wonders exactly what we're giving up and what we're gaining. Bad things sometimes happen to good ingredients. You know what I'm talking about. Those organic foods that are meant to be healthy alternatives to regular junk food. The five-bucks-a-box cereals that taste like extruded cardboard. Or those energy bars that are basically compacted sawdust. What's astonishing to me is our tolerance for foods that plainly taste horrible merely because they're supposed to be better for us. Well, it said so right there on the box. No hydrogenated oil, no high-fructose corn syrup, all natural, no flavor. Don't get me wrong. I love fresh, organic, and sustainable food just as much as you do. Yet every time I browse the aisles full of natural processed food and snacks at my local Whole Food Market, I wonder to myself if they really are that good for us. In the spirit of research, I picked up a bag of baked cheese sticks, those fluorescent orange puffs. They were crispy but tasted oddly underbaked and had 290 milligrams of sodium just in a small handful. That's more than a tenth of the suggested daily intake by the National Institutes of Health. Then I tried a toaster pastry. Okay, just a corner of one, if truth be told. Because it was like eating baked clay with sticky sweet stuff in it. I simply couldn't go on. Had I done so, I would have ingested five teaspoons of sugar and 210 calories, mostly of carbohydrates. I also bought some salad dressings. The worst of the lot was a honey mustard flavor with almost two teaspoons of sugar in every serving. And it tasted oily, thick, and sickly sweet, not something I'd put on my salad. There was also that natural beef-flavored gravy I found. Not made of beef exactly, only natural beef flavor. And don't you think that reconstituted mashed potatoes should just be banned on principle? What part of Just Add Water is natural and wholesome anyway? I appreciate that consumers want common processed foods they're accustomed to in conventional stores. And Apple doesn't always satisfy a hankering for a snack. And with all the demands of modern life, there's a legitimate need for more convenient foods. And yes, compared to conventional food riddled with ingredients I can't pronounce, these natural counterparts are certainly better for you. Yet all that sugar, carbohydrates, and sodium can hardly be that good for anyone. Perhaps it's time for an organic consumer revolt. We mustn't let the organic industry get away with selling crappy-tasting foods in the name of health. They're not all that healthy anyway. Why can't they at least taste good? Pim Teisha Moonwiwit writes about food on her blog, Shape Him. To read more of her menu musings, visit our website. The address is LOE.org. That's LOE.org. You can reach us at comments at LOE.org. Once again, comments at LOE.org. Our postal address is 20 Holland Street, Somerville, Massachusetts, 02144. And you can call our listener line at 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. CDs and transcripts are $15.
listening to the Always Tasteful Living on Earth. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations and Kashi, whose Day of Change tour features yoga lessons, natural food cooking demos, and Kashi cereals, crackers, and granola bars. Details at Kashi.com. The Kresge Foundation, investing in nonprofits to help them catalyze growth, connect to stakeholders, and challenge greater support. On the web at Kresge.org. And the Kellogg Foundation, helping people help themselves by investing in individuals, their families, and their communities. On the web at WKKF.org. This is NPR, National Public Radio. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. And coming up, more big profits for big oil. So where's all the money going? First, this note on emerging science from Allison Smith. A new study from South Africa shows women there have an average of 12 times the maximum residue limit of DDT in their bodies. The most extreme case exceeded the tolerable limit by 77 times. Research has linked DDT to infant mortality due to preterm births and shortened lactation periods. Scientists have been studying DDT residue in childbearing women since the 1980s. DDT was outlawed in the United States as an agricultural insecticide in 1972, but it is still used in developing countries as a cheap, efficient way to control pests. It enters the body through food and water sources, inhalation during farm work, and most notably by way of mosquito insecticide used to prevent malaria. Malaria kills more than a million people in Africa each year. International initiatives in the early 90s aimed to find alternatives to DDT, but an epidemic outbreak of malaria in 1995 forced South Africa to reintroduce DDT as a blanket defense against new resistant strains of the virus. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Allison Smith. Tis the season to slather on the sunscreen, and while we've all been warned about the dangers of the sun's rays, now comes a warning about the products that are supposed to protect us. Jane Houlihan is vice president of research with the Environmental Working Group. The organization is coming out with a new report evaluating the effectiveness and safety of the ingredients in sunscreens. Ms. Houlihan, thanks for joining me. You're welcome. I'm happy to be here. Now, the organization, which you are vice president of the Environmental Working Group, recently did some research investigating the ingredients that go into sunscreens. What did you find? In the U.S., we have 17 active ingredients that are approved for use in sunscreen, and they vary a lot across the board in terms of how much protection they provide from radiation and in terms of how safe they are to put on the skin. So we looked at are these ingredients themselves presenting some toxicity. And we found that ranges pretty widely. For instance, some of the um, ingredients in sunscreens produce free radicals, and those can damage DNA or cells and um, present cancer risks. In preparing for this interview, I, I looked up some of those ingredients, and there are some suspicions that some are neurodisruptors. Uh, some act as estrogens. Is that true? Uh, yes. For instance, some ingredients act like estrogens in the body, like octylmethoxycinnamate. That's in almost 300 sunscreens that we looked at, almost half of the sunscreens we've investigated. Um, that's a concern because estrogen is linked to increased risk for breast cancer. And also there are concerns about what happens to those chemicals when they're washed off our bodies in the shower and they get into you know, wastewater treatment plants and into streams and rivers. Is there any evidence to suggest that once these ingredients wash off and are in the water, um, that they affect the, the wildlife, the fish, the plant life? Yes. Some of the early concerns about the toxicity, the dangers of sunscreen ingredients came from studies of wildlife. 
And what's been found is that these chemicals may be feminizing fish. So it's a big concern for wildlife. And of course, those studies raise questions about what these chemicals are doing when we put them on our bodies. And so when you're combining, you know, six products a day on average for men, 12 a day on average for women, that includes sunscreen too, you know, we're each applying 100, almost 200 unique ingredients to our skin every day, and those exposures can add up. Some of these chemicals on the backs of these uh, products are unpronounceable. And for the average consumer, how are they supposed to know which are safe or not safe? It is really hard for consumers to navigate the safety of personal care products, including sunscreens. And it's one reason that my group has worked for three years to give people a resource that helps guide them. And and one thing we've done is compile ingredient and product safety information for about 14,000 products on the market. And we've put it in a big, searchable online database called Skin Deep. Um, cosmetics, personal care products, there is no requirement for pre-market safety testing. And what that means is that the whole system operates on, you know, the honor system. Manufacturers are operating on an honor system. And so the claims on sunscreen sometimes just flat out aren't substantiated. Some companies use ingredients that are safe to eat, and other companies use human carcinogens in their products. It's a huge variation. And um, one thing you can look for in products when you're buying them are antioxidants, because those will help quench free radicals. Um, It's the reason manufacturers are adding them. So if you look for things like vitamin E, vitamin C, even green tea, those kinds of ingredients can help. Now, Ms. Wuhan, what does SPF actually mean? That sun protection factor tells you how well that product protects you from sunburn. And it's actually a number that's set based on uh, studies of people who volunteer to be sunburned in, in a laboratory. That SPF protection factor, though, only covers what's called UVB radiation, and it doesn't cover UVA radiation, the other dangerous side of how we're exposed to radiation from the sun. And that kind of radiation actually penetrates deeper into the skin. And the FDA is way behind the curve. In uh, They haven't set standards yet in the U.S. for UVA protection. Most other countries have standards. So when you're buying a sunscreen, you have to do your homework. And you have to, first of all, look for products that are claiming broad-spectrum protection, because that's at least a start. And then look on the back of the label for ingredients like zinc oxide or avobenzone that are actual UVA protectors. Zinc oxide is the stuff that I used to watch um, lifeguards put on their nose. Right. So it used to be white and really noticeable on the skin. And uh, formulations over the last few years have been made that use um, smaller particles of zinc oxide that are transparent. So you don't have that problem of looking white all over when you use the product. Now, vitamin D has been called the sunshine vitamin. And if I screen out the sun, am I kind of diminishing my ability to get vitamin D? One thing that we know is that it doesn't take much sun to give us enough vitamin D. So if you're even out in the sun for, say, 15 minutes, um, you're getting enough of a dose of sunshine to get your vitamin D. Ms. Hulan, thank you very much. You're welcome. Jane Hulan is vice president for research for the Environmental Working Group. To find out which products might be safer for you, check out our website, LOE.org. Second quarter reports are in for the major oil companies, and it's another gusher. 
The world's largest oil company, ExxonMobil, made $10.4 billion in profits over the last three months. That's just shy of an all-time record. It marks the first time in U.S. history that a company's revenues topped a billion dollars a day. Let me say that again, a billion dollars a day. BP Shell and ConocoPhillips also saw profits soar 30% or more. Living on Earth's Jeff Young took a look at just what the oil industry is doing with all that money. John Felmy has a tough job. As chief economist for the American Petroleum Institute, Felmy needs to persuade you that those record oil profits you hear about really aren't that big. What API is trying to do is put our earnings in perspective. While the earnings from the companies are very large, it's simply because the companies are very large. But if you calculate earnings in terms of cents on a dollar, you'll find that our earnings as an industry are in line with the earnings of the average of all other industries. API, the trade group for the major oil companies, has increased its spending on advertising to make the point. Graphs in the ads show banking and pharmaceuticals making much more on the dollar than the oil industry, which has earnings between 8 and 9 percent. And that's fair, given everything we have to do as an industry to be able to find, produce, refine, market, and transport oil to consumers. And Felmy says they're putting those profits into exploration, research, and development the country will need as energy supply tightens and demand grows. The oil and natural gas industry is investing more than they make in earnings. So we're plowing the money back in to produce more oil and gas in the future. Felmy and his peers can't afford to look too happy with their success. Already, there's talk on Capitol Hill of windfall taxes on oil profits, new laws against price gouging at the pump, and repeal of some industry subsidies. Oregon Democratic Senator Ron Wyden is skeptical of Felmy's claims. I think the American people deserve a true accounting of what's been going on behind the numbers at the gas pump and where their hard-earned money has been going for the past several years. Wyden asked the nonpartisan Congressional Research Service to look into oil company profits and investments over the past six years. The report found the industry doubled its spending on exploration. But both the industry's return on equity and its cash reserves increased six times over. The bottom line is that the major oil companies are only putting back in the ground a modest fraction of what they have been siphoning away from consumers at the pump across our country. Wyden wants to close a loophole that allows oil companies to escape billions in royalty payments to the government for drilling on federal property. So far, the idea hasn't gained traction. And those proposals to tax windfall profits and repeal subsidies also fell by the wayside. Ideas like those run into another oil industry investment, hundreds of millions in lobbying and campaign cash. The nonpartisan Center for Responsive Politics says the oil industry spent $60 million lobbying Congress last year. It gave more than $80 million in campaign cash over the last three election cycles, mostly to Republicans, and it gave $4.5 million to help elect former oil man George W. Bush president. I urge Congress to pass legislation that makes America more secure and less dependent on foreign energy. The Public Interest Research Group, an advocacy organization, says the energy bill President Bush signed a year ago gave the oil industry $6 billion in subsidies and tax breaks. The Petroleum Institute's Felmy denies his industry benefits from a Bush White House. 
I don't see how you can possibly say that the change in the White House was a significant impact on the industry because what it was that changed everything was the change in markets. But as far as a political change, I see no impact on the industry. Felmy says Wyden's study intentionally picked the years with the lowest and highest industry take, so the math would make a more dramatic point. But some industry analysts also find fault with how Felmy's using the numbers. For example, his claim that the industry invests more than it earns doesn't wash with analyst Lyle Brinker. They have so much money that they probably can't even spend it all even if they wanted to. Brinker's with the John Harold Energy Research Firm. Brinker's also skeptical of industry talk about renewable and alternative energy. BP recently pledged to double its investment in renewable energy and devotes much of its advertising to topics other than oil. There are so many opportunities that haven't been looked at that uh, the transition from oil to another alternative source is, um, is a must. They're probably more, much more of a PR issue than uh, actual dollars spent, or you, you, get, you might get the impression that from some of the recent ad campaigns from some of the companies that they're spending uh, more than they really are. It's still a very small piece of their overall uh, capital budgets. Even small pieces of budgets that big do add up. BP already has about 10% of the world's market in solar power. And ExxonMobil pledged $100 million over the next decade for Stanford University to develop technology to lower emissions that contribute to global warming. But ExxonMobil is taking heat from environmentalists for its stand on climate change policy. Exxon is the laggard in corporate responsibility on global warming, full stop. Kurt Davies at Greenpeace has a research project called Exxon Secrets. They aren't secrets so much as information hidden in plain view in this case, in ExxonMobil records on charitable giving. Davies finds Exxon gave $19 million over seven years to think tanks and advocacy groups who oppose action on global warming. Groups that some people may never have heard of, like the George Marshall Institute or Frontiers of Freedom Competitive Enterprise Institute, uh, basically a who's who of the right-wing think tank uh, industry. Now, in the Exxon world... This is chump change we're talking about, but they're getting a pretty good uh, value on this. They're certainly getting their money's worth out of these groups. These are the groups that have injected uncertainty questions into the journalistic coverage of global warming for the past eight years and successfully have beat back policies on Capitol Hill to combat global warming. Davies found a Washington-based think tank called the Competitive Enterprise Institute gets the most ExxonMobil money. CEI, as it's known, recently produced and ran this television ad, time to counter the release of Al Gore's global warming film. Now some politicians want to label carbon dioxide a pollutant. Imagine if they succeed. What would our lives be like then? Carbon dioxide. They call it pollution. We call it life. Myron Ebel leads the CEI Climate Policy Program. Ebel is a regular at climate-related events in the capital, fighting what he calls the global warming alarmists. Well, I'm talking uh, about the view that uh, global warming is a very serious problem and that the impacts or consequences or effects of global warming will be uh, both severe and very adverse. Uh, and therefore, the need to do something about it is uh, overwhelming. I think that's the 
the three steps of the alarmist argument. A spokesperson for ExxonMobil declined an interview request. Greenpeace and other environmental groups say they'll keep pressuring Exxon on climate change. Amid all the finger-pointing, there is one more telling statistic to consider. As company profits rose, so did consumer demand, up a little more than 1% in the last three months. For all the griping over gas prices and fretting over global warming, we still want more oil. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young in Washington. Next week, they're noisy and they steal others young. They're the birds folks love to hate. I don't know anybody that likes magpies. To wake up every morning to screeching magpies. I'm not sure I would hate them as much if it weren't for the fact that so many other people seem to hate them. But scientists say the magpie doesn't deserve the bad rap. Meet the much maligned magpie next time on Living on Earth. This week at the edge of the ocean. Kim Wilson recorded these California surf sounds. And if you can't get to the beach today, well, maybe this will help keep you cool. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Ashley Ahern, Chris Ballman, Eileen Belinsky, Jennifer Chu, and Ingrid Lobet, with help from Bobby Bascom, Kelly Cronin, and James Kerwood. Our interns are Tobin Hack and Allison Smith. Our technical director is Dennis Foley. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us at LOE.org. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. Kashi, whose Day of Change tour features yoga lessons, natural food cooking demos, and an array of Kashi products. Details at kashi.com. Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt, smoothies, and milk. 10% of profits are donated to efforts that help protect and restore the earth. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from NPR member stations, the Ford Foundation, the Wellborn Ecology Fund, and the Saunders Hotel Group of Boston's Lenox and Copley Square Hotels, serving you in the environment while helping preserve the past and protect the future. 800-225-7676. This is NPR, National Public Radio.